So we are starting a new series in the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. And it's a very long reading. Um, I was going to look at all 11, the first 11 verses, but decided to, to just focus on the first two. So shall we stand for, for the reading of God's word? Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that brings life, that divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that causes faith to, to rise up in us, that raises the dead to life, and that sustains your saints in our pilgrim. Um, on this earth. So Lord, would you bless now the preaching of your word this, and the, the, the start of this new series and this book. We pray that it would yield much fruit in our lives and the lives of this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it's, it's really sad for me to see how common Divorce is becoming among younger couples these days. And I know a few Christian couples who've been together for, for years with kids and who, who are now divorced. And it's, it's really, it's, it's absolutely tragic. And so you know, think, well, what is behind all this? The thing is, the currents today in our culture are holding up the ideal life as one which is all about our self-fulfillment and our happiness as being the highest virtue. And so we're in the middle of a, of a fundamentally self-centered culture. And what I've seen with family and friends is that many couples get married with this attitude and then end up extremely unhappy as soon as they discover that marriage is actually about serving your spouse and pouring your life into your children. It's fundamentally other-centered and not self-centered. And frankly, that's the point. But you see, this is really nothing new. And the, the default human setting is that we all, we turned in upon ourselves. We're naturally self-centered. And as said, we're starting a new series in Philippians this morning. And you know what? The same problem of self-centeredness is one of the, the big things that Paul is addressing here in Philippians. It was even an issue in a church 2,000 years ago. And so we know from the the text that we've just read, Paul is the author of, of this letter, and in these two introductory verses, he addresses these issues head on, and then he 
And we'll see in the weeks to come, he unpacks them in more detail. So this, this morning is very much an introductory sermon to, to, to the whole book. But very broadly, what we're going to see this morning is that those of us who are in Christ have not been saved for a self-centered existence. Rather, we are now enslaved saints of Christ. And if we understand this, the implications of being an enslaved saint should produce in us freedom and peace and joy. So let's get straight into it and let's just look at a bit of the background of the Church of Philippi and understand what was going on there, how it all came into being. So as we already said, from verse 1, we know that this letter to the Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote it while he was in prison. And we know he was in prison because in verse 7 of chapter 1, he tells us he's, he's in prison. He's, um, he was probably in Rome at the time, in, in, in jail. And so this dates the letter to around the, the late 50s and the early 60s. Okay, something else for your apologetics to your non-Christian friends. We know historically that all of the New Testament books were written within the first century, well in the first century. Okay, and that's a good witness to the truth of the gospel. Okay, this was written within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that tells us something. Okay, this is not just some myths made up hundreds of years later. So what was, the, what was Paul's connection with the church in Philippi? Well, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, well, this is where we find out about it. Okay, Acts 16, we see that Paul was actually instrumental in planting the church in Philippi. So how it came about is that on one of his missionary journeys, together with Silas and Timothy, he had been traveling in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, and then he crossed the Aegean Sea, and he came to a city called Philippi, modern-day Greece or Macedonia as it was at the time. And this city of, of, of Philippi, a bit of a background to, to the city, 400 years before Paul arrived there, so about 400 BC, the city had been taken over by King Philip II of Macedonia. And King Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. Okay, and since the city was named Philippi after this King Philip. Okay, again, you can see the Bible is based in historical reality here. Okay, it's not just some myths. These are actual people and actual places that and the places you can still go and visit today, Philippi being one of them. So a couple of hundred years later, um, the uh, Macedonians were defeated and the Romans took over. Okay, my ancestors. Yeah? And the city became a Roman colony. And we see that, we know that from Acts 16 as well. Acts 16 verse 12 tells us that Philippi was, was a Roman colony. So what's the significance of a city being a Roman colony? Well, it meant that the citizens of Philippi had the same legal rights and privileges as the citizens of Rome. Now, you may be thinking, well, surely that was the case throughout the Roman Empire. Well, it wasn't. Okay, there were different 
legal codes, well, there were different privileged, not everybody was entitled to Roman citizenship, even if you lived within the empire. So for a city to be a Roman colony, it, it upped its status in the Roman world, and Philippi was, was, was the case. Okay, and it's also the reason, okay, that uh, the, 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 because the citizens uh, of Philippi were Roman citizens, that if you look at the letter of Philippians, what is one of the themes that comes out that Paul drives home? It's our citizenship in heaven. So there's no accident that Paul is using these themes. He's, he's connecting certain things in the context, in the culture, to make a, 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 a point um, for the sake of the gospel. Now, religion-wise, because the city was almost entirely Gentile, almost everyone who lived there was practicing paganism at the moment that Paul and Silas and them arrived. So what is paganism? Well, essentially the, the worship of creation, the worshiping the various gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world, whether they Apollos or um, Eros or whatever, okay? various, the sun god, the moon god, the god of wine, the god of the rivers, um, creation itself was, was worshipped. And also in the Roman world, Caesar was worshipped as a god as well. Now it's interesting to note there was no significant Jewish community in the city, um, which is unusual because by that time, the Jews had been dispersed all around the Mediterranean. There was a significant Jewish population in Rome, um, in other parts of the ancient world, like Antioch, um, in, in Asia Minor. But for whatever reason, there were no Jews really in um, Philippi. And the evidence of this is that, well, there's no synagogue in the city. And you can see how that context makes a difference in also how Paul writes Philippians. Because there are almost no Old Testament references in Philippians. That's very unusual for a New Testament letter. There are some allusions, I'm sure we'll look at them, but there are very few Old Testament um, references. So Paul understands that he's writing to a Gentile audience. Now the fact that there was no synagogue in the city, we know also from Acts 16. Paul and his team arrive in Philippi on the Sabbath day. And if you know, familiar with the book of Acts, what was his practice on the Sabbath day when he was traveling out on the mission field? Yeah, he'd find this, go to the synagogue in the city and he'd pray and worship with his fellow Jews. And then he'd preach the gospel to them and he'd convert and the Lord would convert people. Um, but we don't see that happening here. Instead, what Acts 16 tells us is that they go, they found a place of prayer outside the city gates. And that's in Acts 16, 13. So it's here at this place of prayer that Paul starts to preach the gospel. And there's a lady named Lydia who's there and she's listening to Paul. And Acts 16, 14 calls her a worshiper of God. Yeah, now you think, well, that's strange. She's a Gentile. But in the ancient world, there were these um, 
category of Gentiles who the Jews called God-fearers. Okay, another one you can see in Scripture is Cornelius in Acts 10, um, who were Gentiles, but they, for whatever reason, were worshipping the God of Israel. Okay, they, they, they sensed that there was some truth to, to um, Judaism, okay, or to the God, of the, the, the God of the Jews. And in fact, that was the... That was God's mission for Israel, to be a light unto the nations. And they were largely unsuccessful, but there was, yeah, there, there, were some, there was some effectiveness there. And you can see it through these Gentiles who became God-fearers. They worshipped the God of Israel, but yet they didn't practice the, the um, ceremonial laws of, of, of the Jews. So Lydia is one of these God-fearers. And as she is listening to Paul preach God's word... Acts 16, 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit opened her heart. Okay, she was regenerated. Okay, she didn't go up and choose Jesus. No, the Lord did it. The Lord raised her from dead to life, working in her through the preached word by the power of the Spirit, how he ordinarily works still to this day. So she got saved. She believed, she received Christ. And then the text tells her that she and her entire household got baptized. And then she offers her home as a base for Paul to conduct his ministry in Philippi. So after Lydia gets saved, then Paul and his team go into Philippi. And they walk around the city center. And who comes upon them? Well, this demon-possessed girl, and she's earning money for her masters by prophesying people's future futures through divination. And so she's, it's interesting, she follows them around for about three days, and what is she, she's a demon-possessed, but she's saying, these guys are preaching about the true God. <laughs> it's bizarre. And then text says, Paul got so irritated by her, by the demon, that he drives the demon out. And uh, she stops with her divination. And so then this enrages her owners, who now they've lost their means of income. And so then Paul and Silas are chucked in jail. So now they're languishing in jail in the middle of Philippi, where all of a sudden at midnight, a massive earthquake happens. And not like the one in Joburg, which is not really an earthquake. But it caused the prison gates to be opened. And then the prisoners obviously escape. And so the prison warden is there. He realizes, oh no, you know, he, um, it's all tickets for him. You know, he's um, he's going to lose his job and his livelihood. So he tries to commit suicide. Providentially, at that moment, Paul and Silas are there with him and they minister to him. They preach the gospel to him and he receives Christ. And so they baptize him and his entire household. So already, and I'm sure there were babies in, in those households as well. Just, just saying, just saying. <laughs> so we, we see uh, at least two households. Okay, you don't know, maybe even the, the, the demon-possessed girl received Christ. We don't know yet text doesn't tell us at this point uh, we see at these two households receiving the lord and 
So here we see the beginnings of this church plant in Philippi. And they possibly met at Lydia's home. So after spending some time with them and encouraging them and teaching them, Paul and his team, and they, they, they leave Philippi and they carry on to Thessalonica. Now, when you read the book of Acts, it, it comes across as if Paul was in and out there in a weekend. Okay, that's not how it, it, it went. He, Paul spent significant time at all these places, discipling the people, building up leaders, establishing elders and training up elders and deacons in the church. So it, it was long-term work. It didn't just happen overnight. And Paul, yeah, poured blood, sweat, and tears into this church in, in, in Philippi. So now some years later, okay, now he's in prison in Rome. He writes a letter to this church, which he was instrumental in founding, and what we can see from this letter is that Paul is extremely fond. He's got this, this church in Philippi, has got a, he's got a soft spot for it. He's, ex, he's extremely fond of them. And you see it expressed many times in the letter. Just one example later in, in chapter 1. He says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. But as much as Paul loved this church, as with every single church on this planet, the church of Philippi had its problems as well. So it's evident in this letter that, as we've already said, they were very self-centered for whatever reason. And it's evident, as we'll see in the text, that some friction had arisen between members of the congregation. So we're going to see how these issues arise and how Paul addresses them in, in the weeks to come. So this morning, we're just going to focus on the introduction. It's just two verses, and they're going to give us a little taste of the themes to come. And now what's interesting, if you look at these two verses, Paul uses Jesus' name three times. So I just want to look at the, these three uses of Jesus' name and their significance. So firstly, slaves of Christ. So the first use of Jesus' name is where Paul introduces himself and Timothy as servants of Christ, Jesus. And the Greek word for servants is douloi. And it's more accurately translated, not as servants, but as slaves. Now, if you're familiar with all Paul's letters, you'd think, you'll think this is quite strange. Because for most of Paul's letters, when he opens up, how does he introduce himself? It's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Bada, 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 bada. Not so here. Here he introduces himself as a slave. So why is it significant? Every time there's something out of the ordinary in Scripture, we must ask ourselves, why is it like that? Well, he does it intentionally because he knows just how self-centered the Philippian church is. And they need to see for themselves that he, this apostle, whom God has appointed to speak into their lives and who bears authority, is not this high and mighty, you know, 
super duper spiritual guy. Well, he's a slave. He's the slave, the lowest, lowest of the low, the least important in society. One who, who's unfree, who's unable to chart the course of his own life, who's bound slaves and are bound to their masters forever. And so Paul declares here that he is a slave of Christ. He's a slave that, who belongs to Christ. He's no longer the master of his own destiny. But Jesus is his master. And actually, this is not just Paul who is the slave of Christ. Well, this is the status. Slavery is the status of every single one of us who are in Christ. Those whom Christ saves, he enslaves. And this really grates against the grain of our strongly self-centered and individualistic culture. This is what people don't like to hear. Even our contemporary Christian subculture, the tendency is that what is taught is that Christianity is there to make you feel good. Is to be, it's a therapeutic thing. It, it's, a, it's all about making your life convenient. Jesus is often seen just in as appendage and as accessory to your life to help you fulfill your dreams so you can live your best life now. But then you may say, well, surely. The Bible says that in Christ we, we are free. How is it possible? How do you square being free with now being a slave? Isn't that contradictory? Well, we may not realize it, but we are in some way all slaves to something or someone. Because no one is truly free from a master. We're all driven by some desire to avoid pain, to get some gain by pleasing some master, whether it's desiring respect, it's maintaining a reputation, receiving affection, craving romance, pursuing success, or even financial security. See, all these masters, let's just call them what they are, idols, they're all ultimately going to disappoint us. They use us, but then they abandon us and they leave us empty and they enslave us to some sort of sinful desire. Now, the difference in being enslaved to Christ as opposed to being enslaved to any other master is that Christ releases us from the bondage that all those other masters held over us so that we no longer dominated by their power, by the bondage of sin. Instead, we've been set free in order to be Christ's own. Because being a slave of Christ is indeed true freedom. And so this is exactly why Romans 6, 17 to 18 declares, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, 
have become slaves of righteousness. So we've been set free from, pursu- from being under the bondage of our sin. But now we are enslaved to Christ and we bound now to obedience to him. But which actually is perfect freedom. These things are not contradictory. Now Paul does another unusual thing in the introduction when he addresses the Philippian church. And that in verse 1 he addresses their overseers and deacons. Now overseers it's, it's another word for elders. Okay, the, so elders, elders and deacons. These are the two ordinary officers of the church that continue to this day. Okay, unlike the apostolic and prophetic offices which had their moment in time in the early church, but now um, they have been fulfilled in Christ. And so God appoints now ordinarily elders and deacons to lead his church. So why does Paul call out here the elders and the deacons in his introduction? Okay, well, if you remember, the Philippians are struggling with the issue of self-centeredness. And as slaves of Christ, Paul is reminding them here as well that all church members are under authority. Firstly, under Christ's authority, but also under the authority of those whom Christ has appointed to shepherd the flock. And Christ has appointed elders to shepherd the flock, as the Bible reveals to us. Elders are charged by God himself to watch over your souls, to feed you with his word, and when necessary, to correct and discipline you. Okay, Deacons, on the other hand, are there to care for the church's practical needs. Now, as much as the Philippians and any other congregation needs to know their duty to, to submit to their elders, well, this, the elders and deacons also need to know that they are also slaves of Christ, just like Paul, the supposedly mighty apostle, as he is. So it's a reminder that Christian leadership is not about domination so not about lording it over others, but it's instead about serving others selflessly. And this is exactly why Jesus says in Matthew 20, 26 or 28, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, bring us to our next point, saints in Christ Jesus. So having introduced himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ, now Paul addresses the recipients of this letter. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so this phrase contains the second use of, of Jesus' name, and it reveals that there's actually promise, joy promised to slaves in Christ who've been set apart to stand before the king. So the Philippian Christians are addressed as saints. Now it's often associated with Roman Catholicism. When you think of saints, you're thinking of St. John and 
Saint Christopher and Saint Agnes, these mythical figures whom you're supposed to pray to. Okay, don't don't do that. Okay. Now, in the Bible, the word that's used for saint in both the Hebrew and the Greek means holy. Now, we know that only God is truly holy. And since the fall, we all sinful on our own. We're unable to enter into the presence of God and by ourselves, we'll be consumed by the fire of his holiness. But throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, despite our sinfulness, God calls his people holy and he names them as saints. Uh, in God's Old Testament church in Israel, despite their hard-heartedness, despite their rebellion and idolatry, Israel was allowed to enter his holy presence. They came into the tabernacle, they came into the temple, and they were able to do that because of animal sacrifices for sins on their behalf. But even this, despite their sin, God called his people, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, he called them holy to the Lord. Now it's similar, it's the same with the church in Philippi. In fact, all of those who are in Christ are called holy. We are called saints by God, despite our sin. So how can this be? Does this mean that now in Christ we've reached sinless perfection? Yeah, absolutely not. We still struggle with sin. We know that from day-to-day lived experience. But the key word here in this phrase is in Christ. Although we do deserve to be incinerated by God's presence on our own, if we are in Christ, okay, if we're united to him by faith, things fundamentally change. And what changes, or what changes is that no longer do we go into God's presence on our own in our own sinfulness, but instead he counts Christ's perfect obedience to us. He forgives our sins because of his own sacrifice of himself. He clothes us in his righteousness and now we're welcomed into his presence, to God's presence as his own sons. So before God and Christ, he now sees us as holy, as saints, and he treats us just as if we had not sinned. Now what's the response to this? I mean, I don't know about you, but that just... Gives me a whole lot of relief and joy and gratitude that in Christ, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. In fact, the Bible promises us that he no longer remembers them, that he removes them as far as the east is from the west. And he welcomes us and loves us as his own. And bring us to our final point, grace and peace from Christ. So verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has the third and final use of, of Christ's name. And you should be familiar with this greeting and blessing. We hear it every Lord's Day here at Covenant Waterfall. So what we've seen so far is that 
um, God has, has, has uh, it, it, slaves have been set free from sin's bondage in Christ, now belong to Christ, who share in God's joy as we are holy in Christ. And so this final verse confers upon us the blessings of believing the gospel of what Christ is, has done for us. So firstly, we receive grace. It's this gift from God that we don't deserve, which is the forgiveness of sins. The righteousness of Christ to clothe us so that we can come before our holy God, adopted as his sons, as saints. And secondly, because of this grace, we receive peace. Let's understand that outside of Christ, in a self-centered existence, pursuing our own happiness and fulfillment and doing whatever makes us feel good, living a life that's independent from God. We may not realize it, but if that's where we are, well, God counts us as enemies. Yeah, it's a life of, an independent life is a life of rebellion. But if we're in Christ, it means that he has reconciled us to our Father. Through this gift of grace, he's transformed us from being God's enemies to being God's friends. And now the result of that is that we have peace with God. We can know that nothing can separate us from his love. We can know that even when we are faithless, he's faithful. We can know that he's no longer angry with us. And we can know this genuine peace from God that passes all understanding. So just to, to wrap this up. Well, brothers and sisters, repent of your sins. And trust in Christ and submit to his mastery over you as his slave. And why? Well, only Jesus has faced what you deserved for your sins and self-centeredness. In fact, he himself became a slave. He humbled himself and he made himself nothing, dying a death on the cross for sins, facing the wrath of God that all of us deserved. And enslaved to Christ, you are truly free because he's paid your debt. He's released you from slavery to sin He's forgiven you. He declares that you are holy. He's sealed you with his spirit and he empowers you to live a selfless life for his glory. And he guarantees that he will raise you to life eternal on the last day. Amen.